Good morning. There is a lot of chords going on up here. <laughs> I'm just going to move to a safer region over here. Okay. Well, good morning. For those of you I don't know, my name is Deirdre Chance, and I'm going to try to make a little safe path here. Um, I'm part of the ministry team here at Twin Cities Church, and a couple times throughout the year, thanks to invitation of the elders, I get to come and be with you and preach. So I'm with you, here with you this morning, and we're continuing on with our series in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. We've been working through Genesis. If you've been going through those study guides that George has been making and watching some of those awesome Bible project videos, then you know that the book of Genesis really has two parts. You've got the first part, that's the first 11 chapters. And that's really, uh, the first part is really God dealing with all of humanity as a whole. And today we're gonna turn a corner and we're gonna start looking at the second part of Genesis where God is no longer dealing with all of humanity as a whole, but he's dealing with all of humanity through one family. And we're gonna look at the patriarch of that family, Abram. And I hope one of my goals this morning is that as we look at this literature, these narratives, this story, that you'll just get drawn in to see the beauty and the richness, but that also we can unpack and see that capital A authors, God's message, as well as how he used the human author to, again, just write this beautiful literature. There is no way <laughs> in, God willing, 30 minutes that I can unpack all the richness and all the beauty of these stories. So I hope that you'll be enticed or drawn in a little bit more by these stories to want to dig in for yourself. Um, and if you're like me, if um, reading and understanding ancient Hebrew literature just doesn't come natural to you, <laughs> I would really encourage you to pick up some of those commentaries that, again, George has um, listed in the additional study part. I know Lawrence has mentioned them, too. Um, one that I've really been blessed by is Leon Cass's The Beginning of Wisdom. Just, you know, a lot of these people are just gifted by God, talented, they have experience to really, you know, come alongside us through book form and just really understand that richness and depth more. So again, today we are looking at Abram. He's a man on a great journey. And so many times as I was re-studying and reworking through these studies, I kept getting parallel images of, of course, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, right? It's a, it's a fellowship of the rings. It's a bunch of unlikely partners who get together to try to accomplish something greater than themselves, to go on a journey to accomplish something greater than themselves. And that's what Abram is doing. He's on a journey that's greater than himself. Leon Cass says, many a man longs for a great name, especially one that could outlast his own extinction and death. And this creates problematic aspirations for humans whose dangers have been displayed in earlier stories in Genesis. But God's gonna be involved on this journey to exploit those very problematic aspirations and educate in the founding of his new way. Abram is an inspiring example of greatness, though nobody, none of us, is his equal. And although none of us, or not all of us, 
have that same great ambition within ourselves, we still likely have a taste for greatness in others. So we cheer Abram on in his bold journey so that it can bring us, like it brought him, undreamed of understanding. So Abram starts out on this literal journey with his dad, Terah. Terah, his father, starts this journey to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and head towards Canaan, the promised land. We don't know why. The text doesn't tell us why he starts this journey. And then he also only makes it as far as Haran. Text also doesn't tell us why he chooses to stop in Haran and settle there. And then the next person on this journey with Abram is Lot, his nephew. And so to be clear, it was Terah, his dad, Abram's dad, who started this journey. It was also Terah, his dad, who picked the original people to go on this journey with him. So originally, Terah chooses Lot, which means Lot is his grandson. He's the son of his deceased son. He's an orphaned child. Um, so originally, Terah chooses this orphaned grandson to join him on the trip, but later, it's going to be Abram who chooses to take Lot with him as he continues on to Canaan. And it's possible that maybe Abram view, views Lot as a potential heir. Uh, again, the text doesn't explicitly say that, but as you're reading along, you kind of wonder that. But eventually, the two will part ways. And overall, Lot is portrayed as a passive man with poor judgment and really pretty much a fool. When they do part ways, Lot's given a choice to pick whatever land he wants. And he chooses the deceptively attractive cities of the plain, these cities that are outside of Canaan. It's like he's just blatantly disregarding God's promised land of Canaan. And actually, there's going to be a problem connected to the text that Luke read today that's a direct consequence of his choice of living in these cities. And there's other accounts about Lot, interactions with his wife and daughters that just, again, just show his poor leadership and foolishness and overall passivity. And then the last person to go on this trip with Abram is his wife. She is described as beautiful but barren and childless, which cracks me up when I read that because it's like the author is saying, hey, she's barren, and in case you didn't catch that, she's also childless. <laughs> they really, the author really wants you to know she's barren. She has no hope of kids. But her name means princess. So she's this beautiful, barren, childless princess. And what else is interesting when we first meet Sarah, Sarai at this point, is that she has no family history given. And it's in a direct contrast to another brother's wife. So you've got the dead brother, the dad of Lot. You've got Abram who chooses to go on the trip or is asked to go on the trip with his dad. Then you've got another brother, Nahor. He's not going on the trip, but we're introduced to him at the same time along with his wife and her full history, family history is given. Yet Sarai, who's going on the trip, gets no family history. It's as if the author is trying to show us that Sarah, Sarai is this beautiful woman with no past and a seemingly hopeless future. So Abram is on this life-changing spiritual journey as well. He's going to encounter trials and obstacles, but he's also going to have many direct encounters with God, who seems to be his teacher 
and his guide, giving him opportunities to grow and mature in his faith and his overall personhood. So his first trial is also his first encounter with God. God tells him to go, continue on to Canaan. But to do that, to obey God, he's going to have to leave his dad and the household that has settled there. So it's also a trial. It's an encounter with God, and it's his trial. And Abram clearly obeys. The text says, so Abram went as the Lord told him. But what's interesting is the command to go is coupled with promises. God tells him to go and promises to bless him, to make him a great nation, to make his name great, to bless all families of the earth through him. So the reader doesn't know Abram's motivations. Did he go because he's already this great man of giant faith? Or did he go because God was already appealing to some of these humanly aspirations, what Leon Cass called problematic aspirations within him. You know, um, God's promise is to make his name great. And that was the very same reason, the same motivation while, why the people in the Tower of Babel were trying to build that, because they wanted to make a great name for themselves. So it would make sense that that's within Abram, that he has the same aspiration like his ancestors. And also, again, his wife is childless and barren, and so it may seem like there's this inner turmoil within him, this hopelessness, that he has no future. And maybe that's what God is appealing to. But regardless, Abram's motivations are unclear, but likely they're mixed, right? There's probably the beginnings of sincere faith within Abram. But mixed in with that is these problematic aspirations that God uses and God's exploits to grow him. And isn't that how it is with all of us, right? If you think about when you first started walking with the Lord and following him and obeying him, or maybe you're at that point now and trying to figure it out, it normally starts with some sincere seeds of faith, but it's mixed in with some problematic aspirations. And then we have Abram's second encounter with God after he arrives in the land of Canaan. This time God doesn't just speak to him, he appears to him. And he says, all this land I'm going to give to you and to your offspring. So there's this implied promise of an offspring that will keep getting developed. And then we come to his next trial. And this time it's an external trial in the land of Egypt. The author tells the reader that Abram goes to Egypt because there's a famine, a severe famine. God doesn't tell him to go just says Abram goes. And Abram, out of fear for his life because of Sarai's amazing beauty, makes it seem that she isn't his wife at all, just merely his sister. And so Pharaoh ends up taking her in as his wife, and in the process, Pharaoh makes Abram very rich. And then unbeknown to Abram, God intervenes by striking Pharaoh and his household with great plagues. And Pharaoh returns Sarai to Abram and tells him to leave. So the result of this trial is that God has graciously intervened for Abram. And Abram is very rich. 
It's literally the words in Genesis 13.1. That brings us to the next trial. Abram is so rich, and Lot, his nephew who's come with him, is so well off that the land can't possibly support them both. And so Abram now graciously tells Lot to choose. Pick whatever land you want. Look around back in the land of Canaan and pick whatever land you want, and I'll take the leftovers. And you have to wonder as a reader, is Abram naturally this gracious and generous? Or did he just learn this from his experience with God in Egypt, where God graciously delivered him and generously intervened? And so after Abram initiates or imitates God's grace and generosity, he encounters God for the first time, or excuse me, the third time. And this time, God increases the promise of the land. He says, look north, look south, look east, look west. All of this is going to be yours and your offsprings. And then he expands that promise of the offspring. He says, they're going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth. And then we come to today's text. So there's this group of four kings from the eastern side of the civilization. There's a rebellion close to where Canaan lives. And these four kings decide to travel to put out this rebellion. And on their way, they're just having military victory after military victory. They're conquering giants. And then they finally come, and the text says, these four kings come against these five kings. So you're supposed to think, well, of course, these five kings are going to beat the four. But nope. The four kings are invincible and unstoppable, and they put those five kings to flight. Two of those kings are the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. Those two happen to fall into tar pits, and the other three go on the run to the hill countries. And then Abram gets drawn in. He seemingly wanted to be neutral, but he gets drawn in when his nephew Lot gets taken captive. This is Abram's, as far as I know, only recorded military envoy, and yet he brilliantly divides up his 318 trained men and divides them up and surprises them at night and puts those four invincible kings on the run all the way back up north to Damascus. Abram seems different in this account. The last time we just saw Abram dealing with the king, he was so scared for his life, he was lying and deceptive and putting his wife in harm's way. But now, Abram is different. In fact, when he's first introduced in this account, he's at the Oaks of Mamre, and he's introduced as Abram the Hebrew. One translation of Hebrew can mean crossed over from the other side. And he does seem to have crossed over in matters of faith and maturity. Not only was he just gracious and generous to Lot, now he's willing to enter into conflict, enter into war, to protect Lot and bring him back to safety. God had told Abram, if you remember in that original calling, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And now he's living like he believes it. The author also does something great in the text that Luke read. He lets us know some of those internal motivations by the recorded dialogue of Melchizedek and Abram. So Melchizedek and Abram both give God the Most High, El Elyon, credit for the victory and deliverance from the enemies. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. His title is king of peace. His co-title or role is priest of the Most High. And he comes out to Abram offering these luxurious refreshments, wine and bread. And to the original reader, to the original audience, that would have signaled, oh yeah, 
This is part of the sacrificial codes, part of what we offer to God in worship. And then the first words out of Abram's mouth are, blessed be Abram and blessed be God. His first, ble- his first words are words of blessing. And to bless God recognizes God's goodness in the bestowal of his divine benefits to his people. And then Abram states, it says with an oath or with a literally uplifted hand to God, giving God credit, and then he gives a tenth of everything away, and he refuses to take his valid spoils of the war, but he wants his allies to be provided for. And if I can just look at that hand motif for a second, right? Abram uplifts his hand to heaven, and God delivers his enemies into his hand. Abram hands over a tenth of what has been given to him. And that's in contrast to what we read in earlier stories in Genesis, where Eve uses her hand to grasp at self-sufficiency, at God-likeness without wanting to depend on God. It's a contrast to the Tower of Babel, the people using their hands to form those bricks, wanting again to be God-like, but not wanting anything to do with God. And then the last contrast we have is the king of Sodom. His words are a contrast. Also, if you remember the last time we heard about him, he was just in a tar pit. So now he's crawled out, and his first words are, give me. Abram is in this new way. He's increasing in faith. He's increasing in God-likeness by depending on God. God is forming God is showing a new way for humanity through Abram and through faith. Has Abram arrived? Is he perfect? Mm -mm. Nope, as the text keeps moving on pretty quickly, the very next thing recorded is God interacting with God, or Abram interacting with God for like the fifth time. And God's first words are, fear not, I am your shield. And you think there's just this beautiful scene of worship. What, What is Abram fearing? He still has some fear in him, and his response to God lets us know what he's fearing. He's fearing he's never going to have a child. He's fearing that he's never going to have his own child, that it's going to be Eliezer, his servant or manager in his household. If we thought it was Lot, that's clearly no longer him. He's fearful that Eliezer is going to be his heir. But in Abram's fourth encounter with God, God not only expands the promise of an offspring— But he tells Abram, nope, this offspring is going to come literally from your loins. It's going to be through him. And then the author clearly records something beautiful. He says, Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This new way by faith, by just believing what God says, is the new way. Of righteousness. Galatians also makes that point that the gospel is the gospel of being accepted, the gospel of being made right, righteous by faith. And then Galatians says, and it was first preached to Abraham. Abraham's trials are far from over. After God expands his promise and tells him it's going to come through him, what's the next account that's recorded? Sarai, his wife, gives him his, her servant to sleep with, kind of manipulates the whole thing. So he's going to have a whole trial with that. But he's growing and exhibiting faith in a way that inspires the reader. But he's also human enough to be identifiable to the reader. 
Abram's gonna um, laugh at God when God tells him that his offspring will also come through Sarah. Then Sarai, whose name gets changed to Sarah, she's gonna laugh also at God. Uh, Abram's gonna have to follow God in circumcision. I would think that would be a very painful trial to follow God in. He's gonna lie yet again about Sarah being not his wife, merely his sister. George is gonna preach next week about him seeing the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then at the end of his life, we're gonna see Abraham go through his greatest trial with a sincere willingness to sacrifice his and Sarah's promised son out of faith and dependence on God. Abraham's been delivered from his enemies, the four invincible kings. He's been delivered from death-gripping fear of Pharaoh. He's been delivered from a seemingly hopeless future, and he's been delivered from himself, from his own immaturities, from laughing at God, from problematic aspirations, from manipulations and lies. God has delivered him, and he keeps delivering him. So the message of today's text for the original audience would be to see that if Father Abraham could defeat four invincible kings, then the Israelites could take courage facing and conquering their enemies. But what about for us today? What enemies do you struggle to believe that God can deliver you from? What trials or obstacles do you struggle to believe God can deliver you from? What about your future seems hopeless? What do you grasp at for deliverance rather than having that uplifted hand to God? Sometimes we grasp at comfort or escapism. Sometimes we grasp at people relationships, maybe a romantic relationship, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a parent or a boss or somebody connected to job advancement. And when we turn another person into our God, right, we start to make that person the one who determines our peace, our source of joy. It becomes like a functional idol, really. Or sometimes we grasp at these if-onlys. If only I had that spouse. If only I had that job. If only I had that body or that health or that beauty. If only I had this child or children. Or if only my kids would grow up and leave me. <laughs> if only I didn't have this child. If only I had this type of church or house church. And we'll know that these things have become idols when our thoughts are more filled with anger and frustration and self-pity and self-loathing and complaints than they are of confidence on God's deliverance. Maybe you've thought to yourself, I tried this calling out to God once and it didn't work. So you've built up this impenetrable fortress, this farce you've put up to keep God out and probably people out too. But if it's true that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully God, and he lived, took on this human condition and lived and walked a perfect life, 
and went on the cross and became our sin, absorbed our sin, absorbed the brokenness and evil of this world and died for it and then conquered it by his resurrection. If that is true, then he is the original promised offspring from Genesis 3.15. He's the wounded victor. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith, of this new way by faith. Jesus Christ is of the line of Abraham, yet he's better than Abraham's promised offspring. You know, the passage, the text, it was very meaningful to the original audience. But on this side of the cross, we are so blessed because it has even richer and fuller meaning for us. Jesus said at the end of Luke, all of the law points to me. Hebrews 11 talks about how without faith, it's impossible to please God. That's his chosen way to interact with all of humanity. Like Abraham, God takes us through trials but he's with us in the trials. And we are literally transformed as we encounter him and increasingly grow in faith in the triune God. God was faithful to fulfill Abraham's calling. And God is faithful to fulfill our calling. Our calling isn't the same as Abraham, right? No, God didn't appear to any of us and say, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you as an individual. What our calling is as believers is that we are restored to that original blessing of creation where God created humans and said, blessed, they are blessed. We are restored back to that original blessing through faith in Jesus Christ, the promised offspring. Our calling is also, and that blessing is stated in Ephesians 1, And Paul sounds a bit like Melchizedek in Ephesians 1. He blesses the believer and he blesses God. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. I used to say this to my students. I still say this to myself. Like, if I could walk around in my skin day in and day out and believe that, how do you do? I'm Deirdre. I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Like, could I just believe that what God says is true? He's developing me. He's taking me through things. Um, And remember, to bless God recognizes God's goodness and the bestowal of divine benefits on his people. Romans 8 tells us that God's working all things out together for good for those who love him in order to conform them more into the image of his son. And we have already been delivered from our greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death. Colossians 2 says that when Jesus Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands by nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's why Paul can later say in Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And again in Romans, where, O death, is your sting? But also in Hebrews 11, back to where it talks that great passage about faith and how it's impossible to please God without faith. Um, Hebrews 11, towards the end, it records some people of faith. Some have conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, received back their dead, quenched fires, 
while others were sawn in half, killed by the sword, or hiding in caves. But it says that what bonded them all together was their faith. They were commended by their faith. And it says they refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Then it goes on to conclude, Therefore, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may be healed. How? How do we go through these trials and these obstacles? What should be our posture? Sounds like we should have this futuristic vision of joy that comes from confidence in God. What would it look like for you to have confidence that God can deliver you from your enemies and your trials? What would it look like for you to give God the credit for the enemies and the trials that he has already delivered you from? And what would it look like to believe these very trials and confrontations are the ways God can conform you more into the image of his son? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we acknowledge you as the great God, God the Most High, creator of heaven and earth. We praise you and we thank you for the many enemies, obstacles, and trials that you have delivered us from. And Lord, we ask you to increase our faith so that we would trust more, that you will continue to deliver us, and that what is most important, you will continue to be with us Thank you, God, the spirit that you indwell us and your very presence is with us in the midst of trials so that we can be changed, and that is miraculous. That is supernatural, that you change us more into Christ-likeness. We praise you and we give you glory and honor and thanks for that. And we pray all these things through our advocate, Jesus Christ. Amen.